Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Megan O'Hare and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week I'm joined by Emma and Nicholas from University College London. This week's podcast title is Echoes Around the Home and that is not a reference to living in a cave. People with dementia face many challenges to their independence as the condition progresses often increasingly relying on their caregivers for tasks which had previously been simpler, such as managing appointments and shopping lists. Many studies are looking at how technology can help this. Emma and Nicholas are at the cutting edge of this latest work. Emma Harding is a research assistant and PhD student at UCL, working in the area of social science and psychology. Hello. Hi. (laughs) What year PhD student are you? Final year, if Ooh. all goes well. Okay, good. And Nick Firth is a research associate, also at UCL, with a background in computational chemistry. Yes, I made a, a big career change and came into dementia research instead. Okay, we might discuss that later. Echoes around the home. Can the Amazon Echo be used in the home to help those living with dementia? Six people with posterior cortical atrophy, a rare form of dementia which predominantly affects visual functions, and their family carers were given Amazon Echoes to use at home for ten weeks. Interviews were carried out before and after having the Echoes to capture the person with dementia and their caregiver's experience of using the devices. As well as the qualitative data collected from interviews, the Amazon Echo also collects transcribed audio recordings, which I have just learnt uh, gives an average of 3,000 recordings per household. Um, So maybe we can start with Emma, you telling us a little bit about yourself, your PhD topic and your funding. Yeah, Um, so I am a PhD student at the Dementia Research Centre um, at UCL and I am working on a project called Seeing What They See which is funded by the ESRC um, and NIHR um, and we're looking at the experience of people who have who have a rare kind of dementia called posterior cortical atrophy which mainly affects their visual um, perception and visual spatial um, processing And I am involved on the qualitative arm of this project, so have been doing mainly interviews with um, couples living with this diagnosis um, at home and also have been doing all-day observations in the home, so spending the day with people um, and seeing how their daily lives are impacted, basically. Okay. And you said uh, it's seeing what they see? Yeah. So not limiting yourself to memory loss no exactly so actually the the um memory function is relatively well preserved in the early stages of um pca um which is really unusual so it's also generally early onset so it really doesn't look like what we think of when we think about dementia um when people first start having symptoms they have trouble maybe driving staying on the right side of the road um getting lost on the page when they're reading um so yeah, it definitely doesn't look like a typical dementia. So um, what, uh, how come it is classed as a dementia? Uh, because it's neurodegenerative, so um, it is caused by um, disease processes in the brain and it does get worse over time. Um, and eventually um, other functions like memory and language will be impaired um, as well. Okay, so when people present with PCA, yeah. posterior cortical atrophy, is that normally further along the... Uh, pathogenesis of the disease so they would tend to present 
with memory loss by that point or are they captured earlier? Um, so they will they will get memory loss later on, but a major problem for them is getting an accurate diagnosis mm-hmm. because the first symptoms, yeah, tend to be visual and they tend to be in their mid fifties or early sixties. Um, so spend a lot of time in a kind of ophthalmology route um, and without any memory problems. So it sometimes takes a long time for them to get to neurology and into memory services. So how did you recruit people to your study? Um, so we're at the Dementia Research Centre. We're um, affiliated with the Specialist Cognitive Disorders Clinic. Um, at the National Hospital um, and we also run support groups um, with, in conjunction with the National Brain Appeal um, called Rare Dementia Support. Um, so we have, we're really privileged to have great access to people who have these rarer conditions. And of the people that were part of your study, were most of them early on in the disease or...? Relatively, yeah. yeah. So we, um, everyone we've seen has been still living at home. So um, mild, mild to moderate stages, um, because yeah, we're interested in how people are coping in the home environment. That's where a lot of care um, happens, um, and that's where most people would like to stay for as long as they can. So that's where both of our waves of data collection have been focused. And so they, at this point, don't have memory loss or have mild memory loss. Yeah, exactly. So there are. There are some memory features, um, but they're, they're not the leading symptoms. Um, so, yeah, most people we would see would have some some memory problems, mm-hmm. um, but these are secondary to the, the visual, spatial and perceptual problems they're having. OK, great. Uh, Nick, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your research? I can. Um, so I've been at UCL for just over two years now, and I was employed to, uh, to, as a postdoc to work on a project called C Placid, which was to do with making the most out of cognitive data and using technology to measure cognition in novel ways. Um, so my background has been modelling and I came in and uh, essentially to do a modelling project. So I was making use of huge amounts of cognitive test data, so pen and paper stuff, where people have sat down for like three hours and done neuropsychological batteries um, and trying to understand that better so we can predict prognosis and diagnosis um, a lot easier. Um, and I sort of got working on that, but then I got quite interested in the technology side of that project that I was on as well, um, and ended up working on eye tracking for diagnosis and prognosis, um, and also been involved in virtual reality environments for people that have got social disorders that are caused by dementia as well. So your eye tracking stuff, does that link with the um, visual disturbances seen in PCA or is that totally different? Uh, It does a bit, but we were really trying to see what we could measure. So we did, actually we had a residency in the Science Museum um, in London where we got about 700 people through and we were looking at lots of different tests of um, eye eye tracking. So for instance, memory tests, we were showing people pairs of pictures and in the start of the eye tracking experiment there'd be two pictures and then at the end there'd be another two pictures but one of them they would have seen before and we were trying to see whether people spent more time focusing on the image that they hadn't seen so it was almost like a memory test there to see if they could remember that they'd seen it there were other things to do with reading um, to see whether or not people had language deficits uh, so we put some nonsense words in the middle of sentences and looked at how I'm realised I'm wagging my finger here that's completely (laughs) useless for a podcast but to see whether people read in a linear fashion or whether they had to skip back and they saw the nonsense word but but basically we threw everything we could at because we had this sort of amazing opportunity to work in the science museum Mm. so and was that 
with the ultimate aim to use it as a prognostic tool. Uh, yeah, um, because so in particular in the later stages of dementia, we find that a lot of people have issues with communication uh, and even understanding the tests. So this type of eye tracking paradigm could be instructionless. So we could sit someone down and say, just look at the screen which is a fairly simple command, and we could hopefully get some idea of disease severity from that. Okay, but that's later on in the disease. That was the idea, yeah, yeah. to see whether... But we have to start off in sort of controls first yeah. and then mild stage, and then eventually we, we move on to that. Okay, and how are you funded? How am I funded? Uh, currently, I'm on an, an EPSS, EPSRC grant. However, that's running out soon, and I'm moving on to uh, another EPSC SRC grant, which is uh, the CMIC platform grant, which is an internal UCSC, uh, UCL fellowship. Oh, okay, nice. Uh, our listeners are very interested in how people are funded. Rightfully so. It's yeah, money, money. Um, right, let's go straight into maybe talking a bit more about Amazon Echo and what you have found from this study. Emma? So we decided to try the Amazon Echo with people with living with PCA um, because they have a lot of difficulty um, interacting with technology. So navigating a screen um, or using menus like a drop down menu would be really tricky or inputting numbers into a keypad, things like this. Um, they have a lot of trouble with technology. So we were really hopeful that voice activation would bypass some of those difficulties um, and a lot of people we speak to in support groups and in the first waves of the study I was involved in um, people talk about audiobooks and general reliance on things like Siri um, so that's why we decided to try it um, and we kind of had different we were interested in different things <laughs> I guess and and had our different approaches um, so I, from my point of view I was really interested to know um, how up for trying it people would be and um, what they were excited about, what they hoped to get out of it um, and really how it would fit into their daily lives, um, how much they would want to use it, how they would kind of navigate it with family members mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, how motivated they would be and then obviously how, how it went at the end. Mm. And um, were you more interested in the technology side? You seem to have fitted some kind of gender stereotype in. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, not gender stereotype. It's very much the um, uh, research sub-specialty stereotype. Okay. So I'm a computer scientist and I'm a social scientist, so we yeah. came at it from different angles. I, okay. I was interested not necessarily in the technology, but more on the disease progression modelling. So to see if we could actually track where people were in their diagnosis based on how they were using the devices and what their voice sounded like when they were using it, to see if we can pick up any patterns that could be used for either, you know, you know, the end game would be an early diagnosis tool, but that's mm. many, many miles away, but something that can maybe tell people where they are in relation to their disease. Did you find anything that surprised you? I think we found something that, surprise Nick can I say that can yeah. I, can I yeah. take the words out of your mouth yeah. we had um yeah again because we come from such different backgrounds um I well I think we we had a number of questions when we went into the project and and aims and we we wanted to see if um it would help with things like um remembering appointments or maybe reducing caregiver burden um in being asked some of the same sorts of questions um, repeatedly, which some of our support group members do mention to us. Um, but we, I suppose I was more interested in how people would use it for kind of 
enjoyment or hobbies or pursuing their interests and those sorts of things. Um, and I think we, that was one of our strongest findings was that most people used it to listen to music um, and mm -hmm. not some of the kind of practical features that you might think typically a person with dementia might want to um, make the most of, like reminders or mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things. So have I might... you found in the general population, though, people that you know who have an Amazon Echo use it for anything but listening to music? So, yeah, we, we saw actually both in people with dementia and the people without. So we've also we used the spouse or the family caregiver mm -hmm. as a control group that they were using it for lots of things. Oven timers is a big one. So okay. people were saying, like, you know, set the oven timer for 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, shopping lists we use a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, the smart home integration, so, like, turning on smart lights, we used a little bit as well, um, both by, um, I use that myself as well, okay. but also people with dementia. But the, the overwhelming number of things that people use it for was listen to Radio 2 or listen to this from Spotify, because we gave people a Spotify account as well. So okay. I think that really made a big difference. They yeah. really wanted to use it to listen to <laughs> music, whereas before they had to navigate a CD case or something like that would have been quite difficult. Um, so. so it was a useful support tool. Could you say that? Yeah, I would... I. Yeah, my overall impression is that it was really useful for people. But I guess we also had um, a, a self-selecting sample in that people who were interested in it and thought that it would be useful for them mm -hmm. um, volunteered to take part in the study. So they, they were all quite optimistic about it. Apart from we, one thing that did surprise me is that we had one couple who took part and he had no interest at all and was quite averse to technology. And um, Did he have dementia or was it his spouse? Yeah, he, so yeah, he had um, PCA and they lived with their grandchildren and their daughter as well. Um, and he was mainly interested to see kind of how it fitted in in the household and he okay. so he had a lot to say about how his grandchildren used it and his wife but he maintained that he'd rather continue just asking people for help rather than this strange um speaker in okay. the room. so he said about uh, he asked his wife for help i guess going back to a little bit what you said before about relieving care a burden obviously that didn't work out necessarily for him and his wife did you notice anything like that? Did the carers come back and say that, you know, this shopping list has actually helped? I think it did help, but in in a way, people were much more on, on a team about it, um, mm -hmm. kind of, than, than that, I would say. So even if a, a carer would say, oh, my partner's had to ask me much less for help with such and such, um, it wasn't so much to, that it reduced their burden, it was more that they were both pleased that the person with dementia had been able to maintain their independence a bit more. Okay. Um, so which that's was really, a massive positive. Yeah, which was really, yeah, that was super nice to see. Mm. Um, yeah. I think we also saw that people were using it together sometimes as well, yeah. where they'd be like, they're uh, in particular, like playing little games on it and things like that, mm. where they'd be taking turns to do things, which is quite nice. Oh. It's almost like a little something that you, if you've got that sort of visual interface problem there's very limited games I guess that you can yeah. play so it was mm -hmm. quite yeah, cool. That's true. Yeah. One thing um, that I would say is that in terms of setting it up often the person with dementia was super motivated to use it because they had a background in tech or they just were really interested in technology um, but it would fall more to the caregiver to do the initial setting up of the mm -hmm. accounts and um, getting the whole system up and running and people did say that once it was up and running that that was great a lot of the time um, but there were a few people who found that initial setup I think 
a little bit tricky and Nick was on standby um, <laughs> for emergency help with that. And I guess it also does rely on having a support network around. I don't know whether it could ever replace that. Do you think that that would... Is that one of the ultimate aims, that you could use technology in a way to... You know, if someone lived mm. by themselves, could they use it instead of having a carer come in a few days a week? I think that um, is a really important consideration in terms of the timing um, mm. at which people get it. And people mentioned this a lot, actually. They said they think it's kind of critical. There's a there's a really good window yeah. when it can be most helpful. And basically, the earlier, the better. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I would see no reason why someone in the mild stages living alone couldn't make great use of it. But we we did see, yeah, the further into the disease or the particular profile of difficulties that people were having, um, they would often need some caregiver input um, at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we sort of touched on this actually before the recording, um, but obviously memory is affected in some of these uh, people and remembering the name of Amazon Echo did that prove a problem? Uh, we had a couple who had to change the name from so the wake word which is Alexa in most cases they had to change it to computer because the person with dementia found it a little bit easier to remember mm-hmm. whereas Alexa was a little bit more challenging but then conversely we also had a person without dementia that often called it Alexia rather than yeah. Alexa because I think it's it's more of a natural name that yeah. we hear it more frequently mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think even myself I get confused actually because I've got multiple devices I've got a Google Home and an Alexa and I often find myself shouting at them in different things and getting mm-hmm. very confused myself but we found in general that people the, the device is billed as understanding the way that humans speak but it doesn't really what happens is that humans learn to speak the type of language yeah. that it likes um, and that that is a learning curve for everyone, myself mm. included, and I'm, I love technology. So I, I think it was really just trying to reassure everyone in the study that um, you're not stupid, the device is stupid, yeah. and you should always remember that when you're using it. So when it says, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're trying to say, you <laughs> just you know persevere and eventually you'll get I there. I just take that so personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess you, you've used Amazon Echo because it is a commercially available tool i mean if you were ever going to approach amazon and say here are some things that maybe would help people with dementia there's some tools or things that people came to you and said it would be useful if we had this or that you know did you get any feedback from them about what other technologies could be helpful i think at the time we did the study there were a few things that people wanted it to be able to do that now it can do like i think the call calling feature wasn't available at the time that we did the study Um, and a few people said that the diary integration could be smoother or I think it doesn't it didn't integrate with all types of online diaries at that Mm. point Um, yeah but there was no specific like we want this app developed type type, uh, information (laughs) coming back but it was something that we did try and talk to people about but they just didn't seem that interested in it I think Mm. the device itself um, is, is quite general um, yeah. and I think it's more rather than being assistive technology it's more technology that is quite accessible for everyone yeah. and I think that was part of the appeal is mm. rather than it being you know a lot of assistive tech is like we're going to put this watch on you and then we'll be able to tell where you're walking at all times so you don't wander away this is something that these people were like talking to their friends about 
mm. like we've got this cool new device you should you should try it yourself and they were quite proud to have something like that and it, it seemed like yeah you know when you get a new iphone you show all your mates yeah socially it, acceptable technology yeah exactly them. yeah it was quite nice so i think actually putting that all of those things there for them is is aside from the reason why they liked it mm. i think if you start making it very dementia specific then perhaps it wouldn't be it is a bit of a turn off yeah one thing i think generally that maybe people would have appreciated is if the the sort of window of time you get to get your phrasing right could be extended and I, I know we spoke about people forgetting the activation word but another problem that people with pca and other types of rarer dementias have are problems with language mm. so often people would say that they'd remember it but they it would come out slightly wrong and they'd want to try again and or they'd ask for things like a piece of music and some of the words would be in the wrong order mm -hmm. um and i think they they often are quite anxious about that anyway so yeah. this I, like, sort of a time pressure to get that right mm -hmm. um kind of exacerbated that a bit for some people i think yeah um from your point of view nick you were saying you were hoping that maybe you could use what you found from it as a prognostic tool yeah so how did we that go um, well, we've got quite limited numbers, mm. which is the, the issue, because although we've got a huge amount of recordings, I only got really six individuals with dementia, and trying mm -hmm. to understand the differences between these people was quite difficult. In particular, mm -hmm. we had an issue because we only had one female in the study with dementia, so trying mm -hmm. to predict who had dementia based on their voice was very much a case of learning who was a man. Right. Uh, um, and we, this is a problem that's seen across a lot of studies um, mm. that men are more likely to be enrolled than women because I, and women are more likely to be proactive caregivers but at the same time women are still more likely to get the diseases yeah. which is pretty but uh, yeah so we the initial results that, that was because it was technology whether that was more attractive no i think in general we see in the rare dementia support group in particular the ones i've been to we see more people men with dementia being supported by female caregivers mm. or family members that are sort of taking them along to these meetings um and doing these things proactively um okay. and i think that's where so we, that's where we recruited from because um, we went to the meetings and started talking to people when they came and consented mm -hmm. um but i think in terms of the prognostic tool there's definitely something there there is some signal but trying to get it out is uh proving to be a challenge at mm -hmm. the moment Okay. Yeah, n equals six. Yeah, it's small. a little, <laughs> it's a little bit small when you're looking talking about voice data, which is this really big, confusing thing. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. You said about the that maybe men get recruited to studies more. We had a podcast another time. They talked about they found it the other way. They found women were more likely to be recruited, so they were trying to do how can we encourage men to, and they were mm. talking about sports. Um, so I don't know, I mean, you said that they had more men at this uh, group that you went to, which is interesting. Mm. Um, okay, so what, you're both from quite different disciplines and backgrounds. Can you say anything about the benefits and challenges of working together? No. Do you want to know? Like, <laughs> we were looking at each other's stump there. Like, obviously, we're not working together very well at that moment we in time. We haven't decided who, who goes first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I will then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so really different backgrounds. And I think the benefit is that it's... So a lot of my way of working is very um, manual. I am do mainly qualitative um, 
analyses. Um, so I work very rarely even with numbers. So working with Nick has given me a whole different type of data to work with. And obviously that can answer all different sorts of questions. Um, things like the prognostic um, value um, and just different ways of, of processing data that can save a lot of time and resources. Um, but I think the the benefit of doing that together is that um, we can cut. So, for example, Nick would be able to figure out very quickly in an automated way what the men like, which voices are male, which voices are female. Um, but then you still need to kind of dig into that and get to what are the, what are the differences in the content of what people are saying. Mm -hmm. um, so, for me, it's but yeah, it's been great that we're we're working on this together. Um, in my notes here, it says. Working with people from other disciplines is a great and challenging way <laughs> to do research. Do either of you have any comments on that? I guess I could, before Emma starts slating me, I guess <laughs> I'll comment on the benefit quickly. Because, so as, as mentioned, I'm a computer scientist and before that I was in a lab, in a chemistry lab. So actually I've never done anything with people before. Mm. I've never met people, I've never met a person with dementia until we started this study. Um, and spending all day at rare dementia support groups with people that are sort of 55 years old that have got these dementias is quite mentally challenging because it's you feel a little bit drained mm -hmm. it's quite sad at times when people are talking about what's going on with them and I just wasn't used to that and I found it really sometimes just a little upsetting mm -hmm. and actually talking to Emma about it at the end of the day after you know listening to all these people was, was really helpful because Emma's got much more experience with it a lot more bouncy and was like seeing the other side of it and talking about what's going on with her research and it was really great uh, I think otherwise I would have really struggled at the end of uh, a long day with that um, in terms of challenges I think the the main one is keeping up with Emma's need for highlighters and pens and mm -hmm. notebooks yeah. and things like that which is uh <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get her to do um, do some writing as well for me. <laughs> I think I have a challenge. Yeah. Um, I think I that mean, this isn't actually a therapy session. <laughs> I think um, that one of the maybe this explains the lack of writing to date. Um, the fact that we have such different types of data, I think finding a way to bring them together and knowing where to put that and where that will fit and the audience for that um, will be quite a challenge. Our funding for actually for the ECHOES project was the collaborative social science domain. Yes. Um, so that was perfect because mm -hmm. we tick those boxes but it, it is I think another another part of the process to figure out what we now do with those findings and how we put them into one coherent story and where that needs to go. I think that's a challenge with most multidisciplinary research though. Mm. You find that, you know, you don't quite fit one journal, you don't quite fit another journal. Yeah. It's really can be hard to try and merge it into something that's useful for people, but at the same time you are doing quite cool research. So. Yeah. This also seems to be the way a lot of it's going mm. because it's very interesting. And yeah. also you can't stay in your little niche world. I mean, you would never have left the lab if it no. wasn't for this. So. Especially with um, technology research, where mm. often it's done by large companies as an afterthought, thinking, oh, this thing that we've developed, oh, people with dementia could use it. Yeah. And it's not done this way, where you really need to sit down with someone who has a great experience mm. and understanding of how to get, from people with dementia, how to get what they want and really understand the way that they work in couples, like Emma does on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Um, whereas a tech company just wouldn't do that at all. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Do you have any advice or tips to PhD students who are planning on working with technology? Um, I think in general advice to PhD students um, is just you know try and make friends and meet people from either outside your field or slightly outside your very specialist area as soon as humanly possible because it's it's incredibly hard to get through a PhD without a strong network both of friends and also with collaborators because you in particular with technology you can get so embedded into something so minor Mm. Like, you know, for instance, I spent like a week trying to work out how to denoise audio files from this project, like literally removing silence. Um, and you just get so into it. You need to speak to someone who sees the bigger picture or sees a different picture to you, and it gets you out and makes you think about different parts of it. Because I think it is so long and it is a challenging process. So, yeah, that would be my advice. Okay, well, good luck, Emma, with writing your thesis. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please remember to subscribe through SoundCloud and iTunes and share on social media with the hashtag ECRDementia. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.